Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners are advised that this program contains the names and voices of those who have passed. Welcome to Speaking Out. Mainly discussing land rights and economic empowerment. Aboriginal enterprises in mining, exploration and energy. talk a little bit about uh, Indigenous constitutional recognition. With Larissa Berendt. It's a fresh view coming on ABC Radio. I think we really need to get some life skills back into our young people to sit down with the older people in the community and talk to them, learn what they've got to pass on, mix that with the um, contemporary way of learning via textbooks and, and white academics as well, and use it as best. Just pick up those everyday life skills. And if, if you can't get them in the cities and major towns, go out to the bush, go up to the country towns, sit down find out who to talk to there and take it on through life. For our elders, NAIDOC 2023. This is Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Berendt. Welcome to part two of our tribute to First Nations elders. This year's NAIDOC theme for our elders is a chance to acknowledge First Nations elders as custodians of cultural heritage and the bearers of collective wisdom. Mm. On the program today, we acknowledge the profound contributions our elders have made in shaping our communities and passing down knowledge and cultural traditions to new generations. The late Uncle Sam Watson was a tireless advocate for Aboriginal rights. We honour his work and acknowledge his unwavering commitment to First Nations people. He was a great intellect and a fighter on the streets and has influenced many people who continue to fight for rights in my generation. Professor Uncle Jack Beetson from Western New South Wales has been actively involved in Indigenous education in Australia and internationally for over 30 years, has been a trailblazer in education and people of my generation and many afterwards have come to know Uncle Jack as somebody who's mentored us and encouraged us through. Growing up in the 60s, I was born in 1956, so growing up in the 60s was pretty tough, you know, racially, economically. It was probably my first experience of social isolation, if you like. And in a lot of ways, I felt that Aboriginal people have been socially isolated and economically isolated, for that matter, for a long time. But I, I grew up in a period where People needed permits to, to get a job. We weren't allowed into the picture theatre until all the non-Aboriginal people had gone in before us. Swimming pools weren't readily open to Aboriginal people to, to go to during the summer. It was just a funny time. and It was just a really strange time to be growing up in a country where your forebears had you know, lived there for thousands of years and then all of a sudden we were right at the bottom rung of the, of the social order. And I had a lot more dinner times and dinners. And it's, it's also on public record that <clears throat> that I was abused as a child twice, not by a family member and not by Aboriginal people, but two non-Aboriginal people. So when you come through life, those things, they certainly go a long way to building your character. And I've often thought most of my life's been spent in the human rights area, either here or overseas, regardless of where I've been. And I think it's those... My life in the early stages was probably the thing that set the tone for my life in that regard. And I see education as probably one of the most basic of all human rights. But as I say, you know, that, those times weren't tough. I, I was only telling my son the other day, you know, my old uncle, whenever people talk about the good old days, <laughs> he used to say, there's no such thing as the good old days. You know, time, times would be tough for them, probably tougher than them than they were for me, but... You know, like we got on, and I, I don't look back upon those days with a great deal of sadness. I, I um, actually look back on them quite fondly because it was 
There was also a time when Aboriginal people were very solid, very united with each other in, in our struggle back then. Even as a kid, I can remember that. Mm. And during my young young years in Ningen, I, I left Ningen when I, just before I was 15 as a political refugee and I always used to introduce myself in Sydney as a political refugee because I left Ningen after a very severe bout of um, police brutality. But while all that happened... I guess, you know, I, I came from a family that was, my father was a very, very tough old guy. We weren't allowed to be victims. And so, so I, didn't, I didn't allow myself to be that. I don't know whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. But anyway, I, I didn't. And I think it's what sort of got me through now. My mum used to say she was a, an incredibly strong woman, my mother. And she used to always say, you know, son, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. So I guess, you know, at my age now, I guess she was right. <laughs> yeah. When you look back through your period when you were growing up and, and perhaps even in the early times when you were in Redfern, who were the people who influenced you or helped shape your thinking? You obviously were very intuitive about the circumstances around you, had an innate understanding of what was wrong and what was right. But there were there particular people whose worldviews or philosophies or wisdom shaped your thinking? Look, there's been so many because I think everybody influences you in, in one way or another and they influence different aspects of of your of your own thinking and and of your own developing values and philosophies, but look, just to name a few, I think Auntie Isabel Flick had a huge impact, a huge influence on my life. Kevin Cook, you know, he he had a, an enormous impact on my life. He was one of the most incredible people um, I think I've ever known. He guided me through a lot of rough times. You know, when when I was you know a young Aboriginal man, my mid twenties. There was a lot of rough edges on me, and uh, he didn't set about smoothing those rough edges, but he he nurtured me through those things without ever being critical of things that I was doing. He, he encouraged me to find my own space, and it often goes back to an old uncle, my mum's brother. He used to always say, he had this saying, and when he said it, I, I didn't really know what he meant at the time, but he used to always say, the sun water finds its own level, and... It was like you don't have to pressure yourself or push yourself or stress yourself out about things. Things will fall into place. And, and I think Kevin Cook picked that up. He, um, Whenever I'd, I'd do something, I'd go to a meeting with him and, and things didn't work out the way I wanted and, you know, I got aggressive or angry in the meetings and stuff like that, he'd always come back and say, how do you think that went? <laughs> yeah. And now when I think about it, he should have just said, look, Jack, you just we're going to chuck you in a too hard bus. It'd be best if you just took off, you know. And uh, but he never did that. He always would do that. He'd sit down. And years later, people started talking to me about critical reflection. And I don't think Kevin had that word. I don't think he knew that terminology. But that's what he was doing. So he had an enormous influence. People like Gary Fold, um, you know, for other reasons. You know, I think Gary is one of the best orators I've ever known. You know, hanging around Gary and you know, not considering a friend and, you know, always have done. But he had a big influence on my life also. So, so there's lots of people, there's a whole heap of people I didn't didn't mention, you know, that I could go on forever really because so many people did. Linda Burney was one that um, certainly had a big influence on my life. We've been friends for a very, very long time. 
you know, she's certainly someone that, you know, role models a lot of good stuff for, for Aboriginal people, and in particular for, for young Aboriginal women, you know. She gives those young people a lot to aspire to. You know, Kenny White, you know, I've known Kenny a long time. So, yeah, there's been a lot of influences, Larissa, including your dad at certain times. I know you've never done the work you've done to get accolades, but in 2000, it's worth noting you were the recipient of the United Nations Unsung Hero of Peace Award for your work in reconciliation. What did that award mean to you and your family? Oh, look, it was extremely humbling, um, to be honest. Um, You know, when when the UN names 12 people in the world and and you're one of those, the first thing you start thinking, well, you know, why me and how me, I guess. because. When I actually accepted the acknowledgement, it was really funny because the guy that came to do a film clip, he got off the plane and I thought he was just coming up to interview me about the environment. I was up on the mid-north coast. When he got off the plane, he said, oh, Jack, do you know? And I'll never forget his name. His name was Stephen Curry. And I've got the worst memory for names of anyone. And uh, that's why I love being a black comic <laughs> because everyone can be just brother and sister. Or <laughs> <one name. laughs> you don't have to remember anyone. And, but I always remember his name and he said, um, have they told you why I'm here? And I said, yeah, you're here to um, talk to me about, you know, environmental sustainability, which I thought was strange anyway. I was thinking, you know, why would they want to talk to me? There's so many other people that are more, far more qualified and experienced. And he said, well, Jack, I'm actually here. He said, I better tell you. He said, I'm actually here because you've been named by the UN as one of 12 unsung heroes in the world for dialogue among civilisations. And I said, listen, if you're going to start that, you can get out of the car now. I said, I, really, I, I did. I'm being really serious. And uh, I said, mate, you can get out of the car if you don't start that sort of talk. And, and uh, he said, no, Jack, I'm really serious. And he ended up ringing um, the UN office in Sydney and um, said, you better talk to Jack because he doesn't believe I'm here. I was a kid. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, so then we went out to the farm and did the thing. But, look, it was really humbling, but I accepted it on the basis that I could accept it on behalf of anyone and everyone that had ever had anything to do with my life because it belonged, whatever that acknowledgement was and what, you know, I don't know where you put value on those things, but but for me it was it belonged to all of us. It belonged to all those Aboriginal people that had, that had suffered and had been, you know, treated very unjustly over the years and everyone that had contributed to any of the ideas I have, you know, like sometimes... Larissa, you know, you, you might be the one that's actually pushing the idea and promoting the idea or whatever, but I don't know where those ideas come from, you know, and, and I think a lot of people contribute to our thought processes and they share a lot of stuff with us. So, so I accept it on my, that basis, but it, honestly, it was a really very, very humbling. This is Speaking Out. That's the key to it all, keeping connected to country. On ABC Radio. Oh, look, I was very fortunate to grow up around an extended family of uh, amazing elders and patriots. So right the way through the 50s, us kids were dragged along to meetings and there's always a, a room set up or a corner set up with blankets so that the kids could just snuggle up there and wait while the adults talked all the business up. Because back in the 50s and 60s, this is a time when the, the referendum campaign was at full swing and uh, here in Queensland we had Aunty Kath Walker, Idrew Noonuckle was the state secretary for CATSI and uh, she was doing such an enormous amount of work so people really had to get 
out there and get those petitions signed and sent back down to Sydney or onto Canberra. So there's a lot of political stuff happening. And Uncle Charlie Perkins, Cormac J Perkins, in '65, and uh, Uncle Gary Williams, of course, set up the the Freedom Rides. So there was a Grinji walk off in '66. So there's such an amazing amount of activity on different political fronts. And as I moved from primary school into high school, we're also given the opportunity to look at other issues such as the South African situation. And that is red hot during the 1960s because of the Sharpeville massacres and the apartheid regime and also the white Australia policy, which was a major talking point. So there's many, many things that were happening. And of course, Australia was moving into the Vietnam War in a big way. So the anti-war movement was gathering a pace as well. So Catherine and I were at high school together back in uh, 65, 66 and through to our senior year in 69. So we were able to be involved in all that and went to a good school, Macabre High, and the teachers there were, were very supportive. They gave us every opportunity to be fully aware of the political currents of the day and gave us opportunities to have forums, to have workshops and uh, and speak out about those, those big issues. Aboriginal rights activism is often called a protest movement as though it's just really about blocking and it's a very emotional thing. But of course, there's a deeply intellectual underpinning to these movements. And I was just wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about where you got your sort of intellectual inspiration. Like, Who were your real political heroes? I drew inspiration and guidance from, from a number of people, but mainly from our elders, because in a cultural way, biological parents step back and your extended family of uncles and aunties then take it as their responsibility to guide you and raise you. And that's not an early road. I think that the extended circle of uncles and aunties were far more direct and far more firm than, than biological parents generally are so the teaching was often accompanied by a clip across the head if you did something wrong and you learnt to try to get things right a bit more quickly so at that stage back in the 50s and 60s there weren't a great number of our mob who had gone through the upper levels of schooling so they needed to draw on people like me who are in high school and use our skills to assist them with taking minutes at meetings to doing submissions and applications, those sorts of things. So I drew a lot of inspiration from people like Uncle Don Brady, Mum and Dad Clay from Palm Island, Uncle Don Davidson, Uncle Steve Mum, and the women, Auntie Pam, Uncle Sid Cool, Auntie Helen Cool. So all these amazing people had come off place like Stradbroke Island, uh, Sherberg, Palm Island and, and other communities and come into Brisbane to pursue better opportunities for employment and housing, etc. but then drew together in order to start the, the first wave of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander-controlled organisations. So they had not a, a high level of formal education, but an amazing treasury of, of life experience and this enormous drive. Every time you went to a meeting or a gathering, you could feel the, the force of these people, the men and the women who stood up and demanded their place and laid it out. They had this uh, united vision that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people deserve better. We deserved far better deals in the areas of jobs, housing, access to schooling, uh, healthcare, 
etc. So our mob really talked it up. And, you know, right out there on the front line, you had the women like Auntie Kath Walker, Adrian Nunuckle, and Auntie Pam Mam, and, and my mum, and our grannies, our aunties. The women played a, an incredibly important role. And then, of course, you had the, uh, the uncles coming behind. And when we took to the streets in order to... Uh, make our point, particularly around the protectionist acts. Like I said, at a time when us young blokes should have been hurling up and down Queen Street and FJ Holden's chasing skirts, there we were on the streets punching on with the coppers. And that is our rite of passage. And we, we learned quick and we learned hard. One of the places now that is a heart of the Aboriginal rights movement in Brisbane, of course, is Musgrave Park. In fact, you can be found there on many an occasion. And I was just wondering if you could give us a bit of an overview about why that place is so important and why it's become such a magnet for the community. The Brisbane area is the traditional country of of my grandmother's mob. And uh, that area around South Brisbane Musgrave Park has always been a resting place, a, a gathering place. So when our mob were coming from many nations from right across South East Queensland, northern New South Wales and even further. They would always come into Brisbane on the way through and rest in place like Musgrave Park. Musgrave Park was such an important place because this is where the elders would sit down and then your mob would come forward with their message sticks introducing themselves. The message sticks would give you an idea of who their mob were, where their country is, what their language group, and the elders would then decide as to which family which clan they should be camping with. And then once you'd sorted all that business out, uh, you'd then move through country and up to places like the Bunya Mountains out to the northwest and gather in that place for the uh, big Bunyanut Festival. So Musgrave Park's always been a a sanctuary, a place where very little um, aggression or violence was, was ever tolerated and a place where there's a lot of cultural business was given high importance. About a kilometre from Musgrove Park, of course, you've got the Woolongaba Cricket Ground, and that was a fighting ground. So very close by. If there were any conflicts or any dramas that needed to be sorted out, then the elders would send the young men and women down to that big place down there that's now the Cricket Ground, and the young people could fight it out. Men and women get out there on the in the middle of the, the ground and uh, use nullinullas, spears, shields, whatever they could, and once they shed blood or broke a few limbs, then all honour was satisfied and everyone got back to the more important stuff. Now, you, of course, have a very busy life around community politics, community organisations, but you also have a very big creative life. You write, you make films, you write plays. Can you talk to us about why creativity is so important to you as part of all of the work that you do? Oh, I think I've, we've always had that creative side. From the beginning, I found that our mob, men and women, the uncles and aunties, were great storytellers. And us kids would, would sit around there spellbound. Even when we visited Auntie Kath over on Stradbroke Island, we'd get the big fire going in the camping area and Auntie Kath would drop down and uh, she would just tell the stories, tell the yarns. And it's part of the really critical cultural dynamic of of our mob. No matter what setting you're in, whether it's uh, marriage, funeral, community meeting, death in custody rally or whatever, after the business is done, you've always got to have a yarn. So Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have this amazing ability to be able to uh, just sit down and swap, swap the yarn, swap the stories. So that transition from there to then writing the stories down and uh, 
always knew that I was going to be a rider of some sort. So moving into the 70s and 80s, I felt a little bit burnt out. We'd taken things as far as we could. We went through the very heady years of the Whitlam administration and we had all those years of, of Fraser that more or less uh, clamped down on everything with his Razor gang and then we moved into the Hawk and later Keating years. So it's during that period that I was able to draw back a little bit and took up writing because I thought that there were things we knew and things we had to share in order to engage more with the with the broader community. So I decided to write a novel and from the novel, the novel was published by Penguins in uh, 1991 and from there I was able to move to working a film through the Australian Film Commission's Indigenous branch. I was able to secure a commission through the Sanders Celluloid Collection of Indigenous short films and produce write and co-produce a short film. And from there, I, I thought that I should try to embrace Arnie Katz's primary area, which was, was playwriting. And I wrote a first play that was uh, picked up and produced by Coimba Jadara. And then from there, in 2009, I was commissioned by the Queensland Government to write a play to celebrate the 150th anniversary of the state of Queensland. And uh, I decided to write a play that told the story of the political development of our mob through the, the life and work of Annie Kath Walker, who drew new knuckles. So I've been able to write the novel and then from there to a film and then from the film to the play. So I'm now working on a film that's based around a death and custody theme. So that'll go, hopefully I'll, I'll secure funding to take it to first draft in the next six months and then from there we'll shop around for a pre-sale. One issue that has remained on the agenda for both political parties is, of course, constitutional recognition. What are your views on that agenda and how do you see that fitting in with a treaty? Oh, look, I'm, I'm no support at all for the R for Recognise campaign. The amount of money and resources allocated to this is just not going to enrich or empower our people. I mean, we've had a preamble in the Queensland State Constitution for, what, 10, 15 years, and yet that has not made any major impact on our living standards. It's made no impact on the arrest rates or incarceration rates or even the death in custody rates. So it's had no impact at all. And I think the campaign itself is a distraction. It's, it's a sop. It's a sweetheart deal to buy off people who make big noises. But at the end of the day, is it going to deliver one real job? Is it going to deliver improved housing, improved living conditions, improved medical care, etc.? And the, and the answer, of course, is no. The reconciliation campaign back in the uh, late 80s, when a small group of people in Canberra decided that we're going to have to have a reconciliation movement. But again, that was a top-down approach. The decision was made behind closed doors and then sold to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. It did achieve the bridge works, of course, in 2000 that did mobilise people. Tens of thousands, what, millions of people across Australia marched across the bridges. But once they'd reached the other side, there was no leadership, there was no direction. We need to lay down real directions. We need to be saying to the Australian people, this is the situation, this is what our needs are, and this is the reason why we're in this current predicament. Of course, that's all predicated upon... Australia sitting down with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander leadership and working out the terms for a treaty. There has to be a defined legal starting point 
for the engagement between the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nations and the British Crown. That hasn't happened. You do a lot of work with stolen generations groups, including Linka, but we actually, since the apology, have seen the rates of Indigenous child removal increase at very alarming rates. What do you think is accounting for this? Oh, look, over the last few weeks, we've seen these horrific images of young boys in the detention centres up in the Northern Territory. And then during all the debate, there was that cartoon printed by a, uh, a national newspaper, and that caused an enormous uproar. And looking at the figures in the cartoon, the Aboriginal father doesn't know the name of his son. And this is supposed to be holding him up to some sort of ridicule. But people need to go beyond that image. The Aboriginal father could very well have been a member of the stolen generation himself. Here in Brisbane, working with men who are our clients at organisations like LinkUp, we have men who were forcefully taken from their families and communities at a very early age. They were never shown any love or any support or any real compassion by the people they grew up around in these dormitories. So when they have their own relationships, their own families, their own children, they don't know the basic things such as holding and hugging and being able to have a loving relationship because they were brought up in these cold dormitories and they were flogged, they were brutally beaten, they were denied any opportunity to develop as strong, proud Aboriginal people. So when we have organisations like Link Up and the men's groups, that's what we're trying to concentrate on, trying to fill in the gaps, trying to empower and open the way for our people to recover, to retrieve those things that they were denied. That was the late Uncle Sam Watson, Uncle Jack Beetson. This is Speaking Out on ABC Radio, Radio National, Radio Australia on podcast and the ABC Listen app. I'm Larissa Berendt and if you like what you're hearing, why not rate us on your app and that way other people can find us and hear our stories as well. On Speaking Out this week, we're profiling prominent and highly respected First Nations elders whose life experiences have helped shape generations of Indigenous people and communities.
That's Titters with Inside My Kitchen, a song taken from their 1992 debut EP. This is Speaking Out. That's the key to it all, keeping connected to country. On ABC Radio. Bundjalung elder, the late Uncle Sol Belair, was an activist, leader and lawyer who dedicated his life to fighting for the rights and welfare of Indigenous peoples. He was also involved heavily in the areas of land rights, social justice, self-determination and advancing the recognition and empowerment of First Nations communities in Australia. Before we hear from Uncle Sol, Auntie Muriel Bamblett is an inspirational leader and advocate for the rights and well-being of Aboriginal children and families. Auntie Muriel has been the CEO of VACA, the Victorian Aboriginal Child Care Agency in Melbourne since 1999. She's a regular on speaking out because we hold her in such high esteem and deeply value the work that she does. Auntie Muriel, it's always so wonderful to have you on the show. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. Always great to speak to you, obviously. Looking back to 2008, why do you think the inaugural Close the Gap strategy failed to have an impact that many hoped it would? Look, I think it's been a journey of discovery for many of the peaks to understand the intention of the original National Indigenous Reform Agreement. And so from our point of view, you could see there were obvious failings in the fact that, yes, it was a commitment, it was written down, it was really well written, but it didn't have Aboriginal people involved. And along the way, the really good things that Aboriginal people involved in key decision-making, a lot of those things dropped off. And I think the intention was good, but I think the actual application of it was never really applied. And so this time around, having Aboriginal people actually sitting at the table, all those targets were important, but they weren't the targets that were going to really bring about significant change in the areas where clearly Australia struggles. I was going to ask you if your impression of the new targets and why you think they're the right ones for us to have now. Look, I think the targets are only a small part of it. I think the fact that we've come up with four priority reform areas. And I think they're the key to this. I think otherwise we just keep doing the same things over and over again and we won't achieve a real outcome. So this time around we've included four reform principles or priorities and those areas are shared decision making. And so right from the outside we will be really empowered to be able to share decision making with government. And that shows in the partnership, in the fact that, you know, there's Aboriginal community controlled organisations sitting at the table with government. And so there are every state and territory are represented, local government and Commonwealth with Aboriginal people. And so that is the first as far as a planning framework and as far as getting strategies and working with and holding accountability, net building in the systems. And that's not just for government, it's also for for ourselves. If we commit to work in partnership, we've really got to as well be able to do that work. But the second area is building the community control sector. And we know there's been a lack of investment in Aboriginal community control. Some states and territories, lots of investment, other states not. And in some states, underinvestment in some areas and overinvestment, much better investment in other areas. And so how do we get strong investment in all areas of the Aboriginal community? And I think that's been the one thing that our communities have really spoken out about 
real self-determination. The other area is improving mainstream accountability and in institutions, and we know that this is an opportunity to look at things like institutional racism, systemic racism, and how do we actually hold mainstream organisations as far as hospitals and schools and hold them to account for addressing some institutional issues, but also the big mainstream organisations that deliver services to Aboriginal communities. And the last area was around Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander data. And so it's really important that our people have access and capability to use locally relevant data. And so many of our communities would say, you know, like, have we got a child protection problem? Have we got a justice problem? How do we know we've got a problem? And often the people that have all the information and all the knowledge are in government and that isn't shared with local communities. And I think that this too, we believe, is a critical element of empowering people to understand what is actually going on in their local communities and be able to come up with better understanding, better planning and better engagement. The Coalition of Peaks represents over 50 Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community-controlled organisations, and you've been the ones heavily involved in the development of this agreement. I was just wondering if you could share with us who's involved in that coalition and why is it so important that they've got a say? Look, I think that every state and territory is represented and within each of those state and territory, there's a lot of engagement of different areas. So if I speak at the moment from Victoria's point of view, so the Aboriginal Executive Council is represented on the Coalition of Peaks and their membership is health, it's education, it's justice, it's family violence, it's land and economic and it's young people. So it's got housing, it's got all of the areas that impact on Aboriginal people that we have peak representative in Victoria. And so they've got a voice through our Aboriginal Executive Council. And so that has been really key. Then we've got FATCHO that's also got a rep on the council. And then other states and territory have got housing, they've got justice, they've got family violence, they've got equity. And so we then have peaks that sit on there. So we've got Aboriginal Family Violence Prevention and Legal Service, we've got NATSOL, We've got health, obviously, as Nacho and Pat wears both hats, but also their chair sits on. So that adds that critical element of, and gives Pat the ability to chair and, and somebody else to speak on behalf of Nacho. From every state and territory, we call for nominations. Some states are very strong in how many Aboriginal organisations and already having peak voices. And some states like Western Australia are really pulling together now a different way of Aboriginal governance. And ACT has a form of governance where they sit at the table with ministers and actually have a voice on governance. And so Katrina Fanning, an amazing Aboriginal woman, you would know Katrina for the ties with rugby. And, you know, the really important are people we've never heard before and had a voice, so national disability. We've got media, people that work with the media. And so media has actually been, for me, a real highlight of seeing how much work they do for us in the communities, in remote communities and getting messaging out. And so as far as our engagement strategy with regard to the Close the Gap, we've been able to get the message about Close the Gap and what it is out to remote communities in language. And so First Nations media being involved. And so you can hear that all of those areas around justice, education, family violence, all of the target areas and disability and housing and homelessness and land and justice, 
And so native title having input around culture and land targets. So we've had New South Wales Land Council represented through James Christian. So you can get a sense and there's over 70 organisations and I do apologise if I've missed anyone, but it's such an amazing group. Some of the conversations we've had, it's been an absolute sharing and an honour to sit with a lot of our community people that are doing the hard work in communities. And you know you wouldn't want to be sitting opposite a table if you did something wrong because they are so astute and precise in their communication about what the issues are and the challenges. And they're prepared to take it up now and be able to really fight for our issues on the ground. You and the sector have worked really, really hard to get a close the gap statistic around out-of-home care and the new agreement will see a focus on the disproportionate rates of Indigenous children in out-of-home care. The target is a decrease of 45% by 2031. Is that realistic? And if so, how do you think that will be achieved? Look, I think in order to get that target on the table, um, there was a lot of discussion about this particular target because we know states and territories and particularly states like New South Wales, um, Northern Territory, Western Australia, where there's you know, a significant number of Aboriginal children in out-of-home care, we know and they were really open about we don't want to put a target on the table unless we can really achieve it. So we worked with Melbourne University to do some modelling around what the target could look like and settings and we wanted to be overly ambitious because if you constantly aim for the low-hanging fruit then you only get low-hanging fruit and so you don't actually get real changes and so we believe with the four priority reform areas if you apply greater accountability by Aboriginal people if you start to look at investment in Aboriginal community control, if you do have the ability to change mainstream services and government's ways of operating, and if you do have better data, then you can understand and work with and be able to work to the data, but also have community control and invest in Aboriginal community and being much more empowered. And I think they're critical. They are going to challenges. As I said, some states have already invested a lot in Aboriginal community control and they see it as achievable. Other states, it's quite ambitious because of the underinvestment over the years in Aboriginal child and family welfare and a lack of really good, from my point of view, good policy, good legislation and good practice. And so one of the states you have to highlight is obviously Queensland and their journey to where they are. And so under the leadership of Natalie Lewis, who's now the Commissioner for Queensland. She has put a policy framework and a commitment by government. And so they're on a journey, I believe, to really sort of see significant policy change. I think other states aren't there yet, but I think we're hearing commitment from Western Australia. I know South Australia is working very strongly at the moment. So I think that we have to be able to get the states and territories that aren't at the table now and haven't had had that investment to really have a conversation about what realistically can we achieve given the current climate. And we know that there are significant concerns around budgets around financial, you know, that we could be going into a recession. And so I think we will have some of the tightest budgets, particularly here in Victoria. And it is competing with lots of things in Victoria around the treaty framework, around close the gap. And so we have got lots of challenges before us over the coming years. You're listening to Speaking Out. 
It just comes down to showing, sharing, you know, respecting. The world from an Indigenous perspective on ABC Radio. I grew up in a little town up in the far north coast of New South Wales called Mullumbimby, just outside of that a place called Billy Nudgel, but then went on to Mullumbimby uh, later on, but known as the biggest little town in Australia. And what was it like growing up there as an Aboriginal man during that time? It was good if you lived in town. Most of us grew up, we went to school from infants to primary to high school with the same people all the time, the same kids and all that sort of stuff. The racism was still there. The N-word was continuously used, your Black Sea, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But the hard-on racism that I received when I got to Sydney, I, I could not believe that in-your-face stuff. But I remember our first, uh, the first week I went to high school, the teacher was going around the classroom saying, this one and that one, and your father's a farmer, so you'll work on the farm for the rest of your life. And then, then he got to me and said, well, you know, your people are nothing but musicians and sports people. So you need to pick in the next three or four or five years, how long you're going to stay at high school, what you want to be. So I couldn't sing, I couldn't even talk in tune, so I decided to be a sports person. But that's the sort of racism that, that you know, that's subtle racism, and this was by teachers in the, in the 60s, so that hasn't changed come today. And what drew you to come to it? I mean, there was a whole lot of people in your generation that left these towns. I think of you, Gary Foley, Paul Coe, who then moved from their country towns to the city, to Redfern. What drew you into the city? I suppose it was work, particularly that far up the north coast of New South Wales. We could have went on to Brisbane, but Brisbane was just a big country town at the time. Everything was happening in Sydney. I came down looking for work. I actually, there was a lot of us up there used to do seasonal work and we used to cut cane, sugar cane and the bananas and then in the early in the new year we'd go down to Redcliffs in uh, near Mildura and pick grapes. And then on the way back there'd be a three or four week layover before the cane season started again so we used to call into Sydney. And we did that for a couple of years and then we got back to Sydney and sort of stayed here, got jobs and that was it. There was an amazing synergy movement around the early 1970s. Things seemed to culminate and obviously the 10 Embassy was a part of that, but it was just one part of it. What was it like in Redfern at that time? It was, oh gee, it was shocking. I mean, it was really, really horrible. You had, you know, a lot of Aboriginal people, because when we got down here to Sydney in the 70s, that was, well, most of us got here probably toward the mid to late 60s. I got down in about 67, I think 68. But that was the end, really, of the, you know, the 1967 referendum that's gone through. But the thing that was struck everybody's mind or, or, you know, way of life was the, you had the Vietnam War going on, you had the anti-apartheid movement in South Africa, you had the end of the civil rights in the US, Martin Luther King being assassinated, Malcolm X being assassinated. And all the politicos then were all focused on what was happening overseas. And we used to say, well, hang on, this is happening here. Have a look at Queensland with the Queensland Act. Have a look all over Australia at what's happening with Aboriginal people, the uh, Gurindji and all that sort of stuff. And that's when the focus started on a political movement here in Australia for Aboriginal people. And, you know, I think a lot of people sort of 
erroneously when they look at that period in the 1970s and they see the tent embassy, which is really symbolic of a lot of things. But it's sometimes, I think, unfairly referred to as a protest movement. It was, of course, hugely intellectual. Mm. Where did your political influences come from? You know, before the tent embassy, we had the Aboriginal Legal Service. But, you know, before that, we had the Foundation for Aboriginal Affairs that was based down in George Street. And that was the meeting place for young Aboriginal people. Every Sunday night, they used to have a concert down there and, and we would go there. Jimmy Little played there, Max Silver and his Silver Linings that later become the Black Lace, James Miller. So, I mean, those sorts of things, you know, and that was bringing us all together because we were all from different parts of... Uh, well, not just New South Wales, but all over, particularly Queensland. And a lot of the Aboriginal Queenslanders have moved down here. We refer to them as political refugees because they had to get permission to get on and off the missions. They had to get permission to, to marry and all that sort of stuff. And they just couldn't live in Queensland. There was only one pub in, in Redfern that allowed us to drink at, and that was the Empress Hotel. And, you know, we used to get in there and, and, I mean, it was just a whole lot of things that happened there. Different groups, you'd have the sporting people, you'd talk rugby league because the other group that was very strong at the time was the Redfern All Blacks. And that, particularly for the men, that kept us all together. And when we'd go training, we'd sit down and talk about how we were being treated, what we're going to do about it and all that. And the secretary of the club at that time was a bloke called Kenny Brindle. And he was actually the secretary of the uh, the state secretary for Fikatsi in its heyday. So my political beginnings was sitting down having a yarn with him. But the cops used to come in there with Thursday nights, Friday nights and Saturday nights. And they just line the vans up and pick us up and get arrest us and all that sort of stuff. Offensive behaviour, language, assault police, that was the trifecta. But we said this has got to stop. And... We talked to legal people about it and they didn't believe it until they actually seen it themselves. And that's when law students started volunteering and the big end of town started getting involved. And that's how the legal service started. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because, of course, there's lots of ways in which you could have approached that. But to sort of then decide that what you were going to do was set up your own... Aboriginal Legal Service, the first in mm. the country, was, mm. you know, it was a bold and audacious mm. move. How easy was it to get going? No, it, it was hard. We used to demonstrate if somebody had... I mean, even for being charged uh, with being drunk, you had to pay a dollar and then you'd be released four hours later. But you might walk in there with $20 or $40 on you and they'd still say, when they let you out, you only had a dollar for your bail. But it was hard. I mean, and Hal Wharton, that was a dean of the faculty at law at New South Uni, he actually said, well, I'll come there and have a look at it. And when he seen it, he couldn't believe it. That was him and his contacts throughout the legal fraternity that really they started volunteering their times and appearing at court for free for us. So that kicked off and that started. And, of course, that went for about, oh, gee, must have been about 12 months before we actually got funding for it. And then there was a hospital in Redfern called the Rachel Foster. We'd be the last to be seen if they seen us at all and all that sort of stuff. So because of the way the legal service started, we said, well, let's start a free medical service. And the medical service doctors, uh, like Paul Tazillo, for instance, that works in the, in the pit homelands and has for years and that, but he, he was doing med school at Sydney Uni and he was a volunteer driver. I mean, him amongst a lot of others that just volunteered so for 15 months before we got funded for that. 
Yeah, it's extraordinary. So this same group who sets up the legal service sets up the medical service, also the first in the yeah. country. I guess one of the things about them at the time, just hearing you talk, it's a reminder that actually not only did they offer services to Indigenous people who were getting overlooked by the mainstream, they were an important training ground for lawyers and medical professionals. Mm. And then we went on with the housing company, then the housing company started, but there was all the political stuff that was going on at the same time. We never stopped lending support to what was happening in South Africa and vice versa. I mean, every time the Springboks, the South African rugby union side, you know, when they came, and, and this was before there was a worldwide boycott on the Springboks in South African sportsmen and women, but, you know, when their golfers, South African white golfers had come out here, we used to go around the night before and fill the holes up with cement so that they had to, <laughs> they had to, they had to dig that out. I mean, we come up with these innovative things. And the spring box, and there's a good historic photo of Foley sitting outside in the car park of the spring box uh, hotel at Bondi Junction wearing a spring box jumper. And that was the first time, I mean, the, the photograph went worldwide, in particular in South Africa, was a black man sitting in a car park with a little fire going in a four-gallon drum wearing a Springboks rugby union jumper. And the cops come in and give him hell, you know. So those sorts of things happen, and, and the political movement at the time in, in Australia was just starting to gather momentum. There's obviously a lot of intellectual strands from that movement, like the focus on land rights and self-determination, that have remained central to the Indigenous political platform. But the other enduring legacy from that time is the focus and the importance of community-controlled organisations mm. that seem to be at the heart yeah. of a lot of what you were doing. Tell us a little bit about why they are so important? Oh, because the community is in control at all times. We maintained, there's only been a couple of times that we've had somebody on the board of directors at the medical service, for instance, that's lived a distance away and they were already on the board, but it moved interstate and they remained on the board to see their term out. But the board at the legal service back then and the medical service, the housing company, that were always local. And by local, I mean within a three to five kilometre radius. They knew what the issues were of the day. They knew that all those things that had to go. And the way that the government tried to dismantle it is that when they seen how successful we were, they started having services themselves, legal centres, you know, medical centres and that sort of stuff but for the general population. But their thing, what we maintained, was community-based. It was not community control. It's easy to base something in a community and not have any local community control. We said, no, this is community control. Not only is ours based in the community, it's controlled by the community. And the community has its say every 12 months as to who goes on that board and who doesn't. When you look back since the mid-60s to now, what are the things that strike you as having improved the most? Oh, gee. I mean, the Aboriginal leadership, that's up there, I think. When the medical service started, there were no Aboriginal doctors. Then that was 45 years ago. We just celebrated the 45th anniversary. We now have over 200 Aboriginal doctors throughout Australia, and I think within the next three years, two or three years, there'll be another 80 or 90 will graduate as doctors. So there's those sorts of things that are happening behind the scenes. But I think Aboriginal people have got to take control of Aboriginal affairs again. We've let that slip. Bureaucrats are telling us, you know, since ATSIC went, we've hardly got any senior Aboriginal public servants in any department. And that's on a state level, territory level and, and a federal level. And we need to get back to something like ATSIC. I know a lot of people disagreed with the way ATSIC was going, but we really need a national representative body 
where we elect them back in again. Now, I've always found you to be a great source of wisdom in the local community, and obviously you've got a lot of experience as well. What's your best advice for young Aboriginal people? Oh, you know, we've got that many, um, and I was going to mention it earlier, but we've got that many Aboriginal academics and that coming through now through that education system. Uh, You know, my advice is I think there's too much being learned out of textbooks. I think we really need to get some life skills back into our young people to sit down with the older people in the community and talk to them, learn what they've got to pass on, mix that with the um, contemporary way of learning via textbooks and, and white academics as well and use it as best. Just pick up those everyday life skills. And if if you can't get them in the cities and major towns, go out to the bush, go up to the country towns, sit down, find out who to talk to there and take it on through life. That was the late Uncle Sol Blair speaking with me back in 2016. Anyone who grew up in Redfern knew Uncle Sol and he's been greatly missed. So it's wonderful to celebrate his life. That's the show for this week. Join us again next week to hear all about a groundbreaking photographic installation curated by academic and artist Professor Brenda Croft. This episode of Speaking Out was produced by Jay McAllister and Manel Creed. You can email the program speakingout at abc.net.au and find us on social media via ABC Indigenous. I'm Larissa Berendt. <laughs>